in a scientific study done by Pixar, humans were found to have five emotions. That was a joke. There's no scientific study. Reg laughed. That's, yeah. Joy and sadness. You'll have to figure out which one's which. Anger, disgust, and fear. And in the movie Inside Out, that's where this is from, they brings these emotions to life in a meaningful and in a funny way. And, uh, you know, joy in the story is trying to sideline sadness because sadness keeps wrecking everything. And so joy keeps, you know, trying to keep sadness busy with other things so she won't ruin all the memories with sadness. And, uh, and we see in the movie there's, you know, it comes to destructive results. And the point of the movie is really that, you know, we need to experience our emotions in order to grow and to be healthy people. But if you've ever been around someone who's, who's being very emotional, <laughs> you might feel uncomfortable, right? I mean, that's the reality. Uh, a few weeks ago, we went, Lauren and I went for dinner with um, some friends. They, did, they said, we're going to take you out for dinner. It's a surprise. And so we said, okay, cool. And so they came and they picked us up. And then we went and they were taking us to the keg. And so we got there, and I was like, oh, this is so awesome. Wow, what a great treat. And we got there, and then, you know, the, the wife says to the husband, so did you d- make the reservation? He's like, no, I didn't think we need to make reservations. I chose, you know, we don't need to do that. And, and then she was like, well, this does, looks really busy. And so, then the, so we're out in the car, and so the girls went in to check, and they come back, and they said, it's an hour and a half wait. So we were like, okay, let's go somewhere else. And so Lauren and I are in the back, and they're in the front, and it is uncomfortable because she is mad and, and she's expressing her anger. And so I keep like trying to jump in. Oh, it's okay. Ha ha. And I like make, trying to make little jokes like, hey, we're still back here in the car. Okay. You know, it's uncomfortable. And they did work it out and we had a really great dinner somewhere else. <laughs> and it was awesome. But the emotion is uncomfortable. Or if you've been around someone who's weeping uncontrollably, like, Everyone kind of looks away. You're like, okay, uh, I, don't know really, I don't really know what to do. That's how it feels. We're uncomfortable with big shows of emotion. Emotions, they just are like that. They're because I think they're, they're out of control or we feel like they're a bit shameful. You know, it's all coming out. I don't know what to do with it. And we're in the middle of our Luke series. Well, actually, we're not in the middle. We're toward the end. We're at the end of chapter 19. Now, as I say, we're near the end. That's like a relative term. You'll know because we have another two months, you know, to go with Luke. But, uh, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's been a long journey. And Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the last time. And everyone is expecting him to ride into the temple and declare himself to be the Messiah, like an an Israel's William Wallace. He's going to go in there and he's going to just say this is the deal. And he's famous. Everyone knows about him at this point. You know, people are talking about Jesus. That's why there's the big crowd when he comes in and they're all cheering. This is the excitement. Coats on the ground, palm branches, waving, shouts of acclaim and worship, messianic declarations people are making as he comes. And Jesus rides in on the donkey. Right? Look, it's exciting. Side saddle, probably. And then he starts crying, weeping. And then the next thing we know, he's flipping over tables. Uncomfortable. Let's read the stories. They may be 
uncomfortable for us. The end of chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And uh, if you have a Bible, you can read along chapter 19, verses 41 to 48. Actually, I'll read a little bit, a little bit back. So into the triumphal entry, which we talked about last week. Um, As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So Pharisees talk. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you. And hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is God's word. When we see what Jesus sees, we'll care about what he cares about. When we see what Jesus sees, we will care about what he cares about. Jesus is emotional. There's an emotional Jesus. Now, I know we're used to movie Jesus. I call him movie Jesus. We're used to movie Jesus. We have a concept of what Jesus is like. He's got blonde hair, blue eyes, an English accent maybe. I don't know if this guy does or not, but nice, long hair, nicely groomed beard, muscular, not too muscular. You know, nice to look at, but not too nice. Maybe he's Italian looking or a little stoic. Maybe he's overly intense at times, talks weirdly a little bit about things as you watch. Or maybe there's some movie Jesus is who smile every once in a while, and that's always nice, you know, when they're smiling. I saw one that laughed once. You know, mostly it's not like that. Mostly movie Jesus is just a certain way. Now, real Jesus is different. And often we like, we just skim over verses that maybe should, we should stop and think about a little bit. Verses like John 4, 6. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. You're like, what? That's the verse? Yeah, Jesus. Like, picture Peter and James, they're like, all right, we're going to get to the next. We're setting the pace here, guys. Okay, no bathroom breaks on the next run. We're going to make this in record time, okay? And then Jesus says, hey, guys, I'm tired. I'm sitting down. It's like, Jesus, you're tired? Jesus is tired? Jesus, you're God. You're not tired. Well, my legs are tired. Your legs are tired? What? Weird. Or in Matthew 26, 38, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
Jesus said that. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of, what does that even mean? Are you allowed to say that, Jesus? Overwhelmed to the point of death. That doesn't sound good. Or Luke 19.41, our passage. And he drew near and he saw the city. He wept over it. Weeping like, you mean like tears trickle, right? Like not with noises. Not like tears accompanied by mucus weeping, right? Not that kind of weeping. Not the like sobbing weep. Not like, it's like quiet weeping, right? Right? Jesus weeps. Jesus feels what we feel. Jesus felt compassion. Jesus felt angry, indignant, consumed with zeal. He was troubled. He was greatly distressed, very sorrowful, deeply moved and grieved. He sighed. He wept. He sobbed and groaned and was in agony. He was surprised and amazed at different points. He rejoiced very greatly and was full of joy. He greatly desired and he loved. This is Jesus. It says in Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. So whenever we are in need, we should come bravely before the throne of our merciful God. There we will be treated with undeserved kindness and we will find help. That's the contemporary version. We will find help. Jesus understands what what we've experienced, what we're experiencing. He feels what we feel. He sees what, what we're going through and what we need to learn in the process. So you need to stop picturing a God who's distant and far away and start picturing Jesus who walked where we walk, who feels emotion. 1 Peter 4, verse 1 in the message says it like this. Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. I like that. Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. We see in this passage, sad Jesus. Sad Jesus. Jesus should be pumped. He should be so excited. This is like the big moment. This is cresting the hill and Jerusalem's there and every, the crowd is there. We're excited. Everyone's shouting. It's, it, there's a lot of excitement. Coats are on the ground. I mean, and then suddenly Jesus is crying. And it's not crying because he's happy. Like, I'm so happy. This moment is so great. And he's crying. It's not that kind of crying. Why is he crying? Why is he weeping? We know. We have the benefit of history to help us know what Jesus was seeing in that moment. In 66 AD, the Jews threw off the yoke of Rome, this thing they'd been waiting and hoping for. In 66 AD, they they did it. They threw off Rome, they revolted, and it seemed like, you know, maybe it was going to work out until Nero, who was the emperor, dispatched his general Vespasian, and the Roman legions to come and to deal with the uprising. And they did. They began to work systematically through Israel to quell the uprising. And slowly but surely, they made their way to Jerusalem. And as they got near to Jerusalem, kind of by 68, 
AD. They turn their focus there, and Nero dies. So the emperor off in Rome, he dies, and there's this power vacuum, and so they say, we need Vespasian to come back to Rome to be our emperor. And so he, he leaves, and when he leaves, he sets up his son, who's a general, to deal with the job and to finish it off. So he says, Titus, I want you to finish this job. And he gives him really specific instructions. The instructions are, every man, woman, and child in the city are to be destroyed. This is like common quelling of revolution, kind of 101. That's how, you, that's how they would deal with it. Make sure no one does this again. And on April 9th, the Roman legions surround Jerusalem and they mount a siege. And they trap thousands of people inside who are there for the Passover and for the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they start this siege. And if you know, a siege is where you, you, you've got to deal with the walls in a city. And so it's going to take some time. And so they set up shop the Roman way. They go and they cut down all the trees on the Mount of Olives. And they turn those trees into barricades, into ramparts, into trebuchets. So these big, they launch the fireballs, you know, really far, like catapults. And they rain destruction on the city. And the Romans held the city throughout the summer, and finally they, they began to break down the walls in early September. Josephus, who's a historian, he gives the account of what happened. He says there were 1,100,000 people who were killed. That's crazy. Now, historians will debate. They'll say, oh, that's a lot of people, and they have different, you know, things. Oh, it's this one guy's account. Regardless, it was a lot of people who were killed. Lots of other people were taken captive and they were sent into the circuses, into gladiatorial, gladiator games, the bouts, and Jerusalem burns. The temple, so Titus, the general, he wanted to save the temple, but in the midst of all the battle and all the fighting, it caught fire and they couldn't put it out. Burned to the ground, ashes, nothing is left. And Jesus looks over the city and he says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and they will surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. True words. Grieving words. Jesus grieves because he prophetically sees a moment in the future and it grieves his heart. He grieves because these people will shout crucify him and they will refuse to bend the knee. He grieves the coming destruction of this generation of people who desperately want saving, but who can't recognize the savior who's standing in front of them. The very one who's come to save them, they don't recognize. Jesus says, you're missing the visitation, the day of visitation. Joel 2 verse 1 says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So the 
The people of Israel knew this. This was like a thing they talked about. The day of visitation or the day of the Lord, they called it. It wasn't a quiet thing that was going to happen in secret. It was a big deal. The trumpet would sound. The alarm would, would, would sound. The blow the trumpet, sound the alarm. Everyone's going to know when the Savior comes. Like how we think of the, the second coming. Like we say, everyone's going to know. When Jesus comes back. Well, that's what they said then. Everyone's going to know on the day of visitation. When the Savior comes, we're all going to know. The Greek word for visitation is episcope. It's the same word actually for bishop, overseer, those charged with tending or looking after the flock, like a supervisor or an inspector. It's really close to the word for the general who would come and inspect his troops and find whether they were ready This is the word for Jesus is coming when he's standing there among them. You didn't recognize it. The one overseer come to see you, come to inspect, come to be here. You didn't recognize it. Jesus grieves because he came to bring life, abundant life. And their revolution, their answer was going to bring suffering and death, horrible suffering for Jerusalem. All these people killed. Now, I always say, well, if I'd been there, or I'm sure you think too, maybe if you'd been there, we would be following Jesus. Of course, we would recognize the visitation. And I always think this, you know, oh, I would be the, I would be the disciples. I'd be with them. I'd, you know, these are the people we picture we're, we would be there with. But the question I have for you and for me is, would we? Or would we resist change? Would it be hard for us? Would we be stuck in our religious systems, in the way we've always done things, in the status quo, which is what Jesus shook when he came? Jesus weeps. He weeps out this longing. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Do you know what makes for peace? When Jesus says the things that make for peace, do you know the things that make for peace? Because it's not a revolution and it's not a bigger army and it's not horses and chariots. It's not more money. It's not more stuff. It's not more investments. It's not more achievements or more accolades or more control. It's not a better job. It's not more power or influence. The things that make for peace is one God-man, rejected and alone. The rabbi, the teacher, the healer, falsely accused by his enemies, beaten, mocked, scourged, bloodied and battered, his body torn and broken and hung on a cross. And then he dies quickly under the weight of all the sins of the world. This is what Ephesians 2 says about this piece. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two So making peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus was their peace. 
and they couldn't recognize it. We've sad Jesus, and in this passage, we have mad Jesus. I call him mad Jesus. It's maybe not totally fair because the Bible doesn't actually say Jesus is angry, does it? It says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. We could read it in different tones of voice, right? Is he really angry? This story is also told in Matthew and in Mark, and they give us some other details that helps us understand, you know, specifically what's going on. So Mark says this. He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Like, picture you're walking through the temple. Someone knocks it out of your hand. Who is that? That was Jesus. Where's this? Where's my seat? Jesus just knocked it over. Where is he now? He's over there. He's knocking over that guy's seat. Someone else walking through. Their stuff gets knocked out of their hands. I mean, whatever word you want to put to it, mad or angry or irate or cross, heated, furious, incensed, outraged, ireful, you pick the word. I mean, in all the pictures, he's angry, so that's got to be true, right? (laughs) You can't flip over tables and chairs and knock things out of people's hands and drive people out without showing some kind of emotion. Jesus is, he's feeling this. Does Jesus say not to be angry, though? How come he gets to be angry? Why does he get to flip over tables and I have to be nice? Is that fair? Isn't anger a sin, right? Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. So clearly, there's a way that you could experience the emotion of anger and not sin. There's got to be a way that that's possible. And Jesus does this. He feels the feeling. And then in his actions, he doesn't sin. He doesn't cross the line. So what makes Jesus do this? What, what causes him to be angry and not to sin? Well, I will say Jesus isn't mad. One common reason we give is because people are selling things in the temple or around the temple. The truth is that, that this was a necessary thing. It was a provision made for people who were traveling from far away who couldn't bring their sacrifice. So if you were a pilgrim and you lived far away from Jerusalem and you were going to travel to Jerusalem, you couldn't bring your animals with you. That just wouldn't work. So they would sell their animals. They would get the money. They would travel to Jerusalem. And then in Jerusalem, they would buy an animal to sacrifice. And that was okay. In fact, there's provision for it because you want people to be able to make their sacrifices. Also, there's temple tax. So there's money changers. There's like things need to happen so that people could pay the temple tax and enable the ministry of the temple to keep going. So these were important functions that were supposed to happen around the temple. Now, we could say Jesus is mad because they're ripping people off. And that may be true. If you've ever gone to the airport and you've gone through security and then you try to buy a bottle of water, you'll feel what they felt, which is someone has you over a barrel, right? You're in there. You can't, you can't get out to buy the water again, and they won't let you bring the water in, so you're stuck. You need to buy that $10 bottle of water. 
and drink it in one gulp. And that's how it feels. And so, you know, we could say, well, that's why Jesus is angry. And maybe that's part of it. But that's not the reason, the only reason, or the most important reason Jesus is cleaning house. Jesus says this this statement. And it's two quotes from the Old Testament. The statement Jesus makes. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. Those two things are two quotes. My house shall be a house of prayer and the den of robbers. And it tells us what's in Jesus' heart when he goes in there and he's flipping over tables. What is he angry about? The first thing is the house of prayer. This is what it says in Isaiah 56. This is the passage Jesus is quoting. It's titled, if you have titles in your Bible, you'll see it's titled Salvation for Foreigners. Salvation for Foreigners. That's what this section is called. This is what it says. These, so the foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus is angry because he's standing in the Gentile court, the outer court, where the Gentiles and the foreigners would come and worship and pray. And it sounds more like the New York Stock Exchange floor or something. Like, it's crazy. It's chaotic. I think that one picture up there before showed it's like, it's just people everywhere. And someone is supposed to come and pray and seek the Lord in that environment? Jesus says, no. This is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. And he's angry that if you were a Jew, you could pray in peace. You could go into the inner court and pray in peace. If you were a Gentile, like it or lump it, this is where you got to pray. Jesus is angry the temple's being mismanaged. That there's barriers set against worship. And when he cleanses the temple, he makes a statement that his house is is open, is welcome to all nations, to all people. And comes back to that Luke for everyone. That message, the kingdom is open. Come in, come in. It's welcome for everyone. And secondly, Jesus quotes this other passage in Jeremiah. And the passage in Jeremiah is a very interesting one. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 to 11 says, God says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jesus doesn't just have an emotional outburst. Because he's mad in this moment. He's doing, he's making an intentional messianic act of cleaning house. It's a continuation of his grieving. It's a statement to a temple full of religious fundamentalists who thought the temple would protect them from judgment. They said, we can do whatever we want because we have this temple. If I just go rub the temple, yeah, great. Okay, I come in the temple, great. I'm safe. And the message all the way back from Jeremiah is it doesn't work like that. The temple won't save you. The Savior will. 
You who close the doors to the outcasts. You who, who oppose God's heart. You who steal the kingdom away from the lost and the seeking. Jesus is angry over the hypocrisy of a religious system that's meant to lead people to knowing God. And instead, they are barred, blocked, barriered. And our lives are meant to lead people in knowing Jesus. Not just avoiding punishment somehow. Francis Chen says, do you know that nothing you do in this life will ever matter unless it is about loving God and loving the people he's made? When Jesus clears the temple, he's making a statement about new management. It's a new way we're going to do this. And we have emotional Christians. Last week, during prayers of the people, Lauren was up here and she, she was praying and she started weeping. Do you remember? Yeah. And um, she was praying for the youth alpha that's happening in this school. And she started weeping. And she told me after that um, in that moment as she was praying, she started seeing, picturing the youth of this school. And that some of them were missing the kingdom. That they were missing this opportunity to hear about Jesus. And it broke her heart. And as she saw them in her eyes, and different ones she knows, that Maddie knows, she was picturing them, and she said, I just could have sobbed. And I had to, like, hold it in just to, just to be weepy. I don't know how you felt in that moment. I don't know if you were uncomfortable, or if you joined in, maybe you felt weepy too. This week, Maddie came home. I said, oh, how did youth alpha go this week? You know, we, we prayed. She said... It didn't happen. We went to the room and we found out that um, there's people who are opposing youth alpha happening in the school. So the, the guys who were running it, the students who came up with the idea of doing it, they were off trying to meet and trying to figure out what was going on. So we met anyway and we just talked about stuff and it was great. Like we talked about different people's questions and it was good anyway, but, um, but there's this opposition. And as I heard this, I felt angry. I felt angry. It was like, this doesn't seem right. How come a student-led group can't meet in a classroom at a lunch hour for people who want to go there? Like, that doesn't sound very tolerant of our very tolerant society. And it made me feel indignant and angry. And I said to Maddie, Maddie, if you need me to go in, I'll talk to somebody. She was like, well, maybe not right now, Dad, okay? You seem a little bit worked up. Do you feel, do you feel, are you connected to emotion? What, what breaks our hearts? Do you see what God sees? Do you get a picture of what God cares about? Prophecy is listening to the heart of God. It's, it's a willingness to speak of the invisible, to, to get connected. It's not just like a weird emotional response. It's that we grieve with God. God grieves over things and we grieve with him. Or we call out destiny in people. We say, wow, empty chair. I'll say this to the empty chair. You're kind of a loser. Except for God doesn't see you that way. What does God see in you? Oh, God sees destiny and purpose. And I'm going to begin to call that out in you. That's prophecy. Do we do, are we living this way where we call out life in people, in one another? where we lament and we grieve and we weep with God. 
and then lay it back at his feet and say, you're the savior. Are we able to do that? Maybe the next time you feel that lump in your throat and you like choke it back and you're like, okay, okay, just control it, just control it. Maybe just don't. Maybe just let it out. And if it's grief, then experience the grief of it. And if it's joy, then feel joy. Let's feel what God is feeling and walk with him in it. What should make us angry? You guys, since 2014, this is a Statistics Canada. Since 2014, the homeless population in Ridge Meadows has increased by 48%. Most of us don't give a damn. I did that on purpose. (gasps) Did he just say damn? Oh my goodness. Do you know what? Some of us are more offended that I just said damn in church than you are about the homeless situation. That's a tricky pastor thing that I read somewhere. And when I read it, I wept, actually. Because do you know what? It's true of me. It's true of me. I'm like, that's not appropriate. You still shouldn't do that. Why? Why are we more offended by these? What makes us angry? We're more angry about our offenses. Like we're offended by sinners. We're offended by swearing and smoking and sexuality. We're offended for God's holy sensibilities. Mark 3 verse 5. Jesus looked around at them in anger. And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And it was restored. What makes Jesus angry? What does he grieve about? Religiosity. Does that, when's the last time you were offended by religiosity? Indignant over the mistreatment of our homeless? Or moved by the plight of the refugee? Or grieved over the lost who don't know Jesus and who suffer? They suffer in a hopeless, on a hopeless road. Does it grieve you like it grieves God? Or have we just turned it off? Yeah, I don't want to think about it. You guys, when we see what Jesus sees, the way he sees, we're going to start caring about what he cares about. Jesus is emotional. He feels He feels what you and I feel. And he's seen what we see. And he was human. And he was God. He was sad. He sees a future moment and he grieves for that generation. You guys, we have generations of people, generations in this school that we should grieve for, we should pray for, we should awaken our hearts to what God wants to do. Jesus grieves their missing peace. He grieves a generation who missed their visitation. And Jesus gets angry. He's angry that outsiders are kept out and insiders are live in hypocrisy. And he's, he cleanses the temple as this messianic act to say a new and better temple is coming under new management with a curtain that's torn and a way that's open. And we are called to feel to walk with Jesus, to weep and to rage with him, to weep for the lost and the hurting and those are missing it, to rage over the destruction of sin and the religious barriers that hold people out and our own hypocrisy. 
Yes, even our own hypocrisy. One definition of the fear of the Lord is, Joy Dawson says, the fear of the Lord is to love what he loves and hate what he hates. To love what he loves and hate what he hates. Let's pray.